I invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. As we continue our verse-by-verse study of this marvelous epistle that exposes the dangers of false teachers within the church and the havoc that they can wreak upon it. And this morning again we find ourselves in chapter 2 of 2 Peter beginning in the middle of verse 10, going through verse 22. Let me read this, and we will be looking more exclusively this morning at verse 15 through 22. But I want to read the whole section so that you get the flow. Referring to false teachers, the beginning of verse 10 or the middle of verse 10, Peter says they are daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery and that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a dumb donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Every week. I receive questions from people from, frankly, all over the world as they listen to the sermons via the Internet. Questions especially pertaining to false doctrine and false teachers. In fact, whenever I do a series or any kind of a sermon on false teachers, we see an enormous amount of people wanting to hear those. So it is a very, very important subject these days. In fact, a friend asked me last week, do you know anything about, and they gave the name of this person in this ministry, and this lady indicated that she has friends that listen to them 
or, or listen to this man. And and she said, I, I've heard him, but she says, I'm just real concerned. He says some things that really seem different. And so I immediately uh, went online to check him out and, and did a little research. I had not heard of this particular one, but it became very clear to me very quickly that he had some bizarre, bizarre distortions of Scripture, some very novel interpretations about things, a mixture of beliefs indicative of kind of the quasi-Christian groups that are out there today as well as cults. And unfortunately, I found that there are millions of people that follow this man. And this, this guy is no different than many other men and women. And people with no biblical discernment, desperate for something to fill their void, their spiritual void, rush to these types of people. This man bears the same marks of most false teachers, many of which we've looked at even so far. He lacked formal theological education. He pretends to be scholarly. But his doctrines can easily be refuted by anyone that knows the Scripture. Inevitably, he contradicts historical Orthodox Christian theology. And he, like many, will claim some kind of special revelation given to them, some vision or some word from God, some private insight that nobody else in 2,000 years of Christian scholarship has been able to perceive. And... It's obvious as well that they will use experience rather than exegesis to validate their truth claims. They have no understanding of the principles of Bible interpretation. They will typically spiritualize Old Testament stories to get them to mean all manner of things. They will torture texts to somehow support their doctrines. For example, this man denies the Trinity. Uh, he believes in something called British Israelism that claims in one way or another that the ten northern tribes of Israel migrated to northern Europe and eventually uh, a portion came to North America and that the British uh, Americans are descendants of the ten lost tribes uh, and by implication are superior to the Jews as well as to the blacks. This is very uh, similar to uh, Herbert W. Armstrong and some of his teaching. He teaches, for example, the serpent seed um, where he connects... Uh, um, the, the seed of the serpent with the Kenites of the Old Testament. And according to this teaching, uh, Satan had sexual intercourse with Eve in the garden and Cain and his des descendants were the result of that particular um, relationship and Cain's descendants become the Kenites and so on. And then the Kenites, who are really the Jews that did not accept Jesus as the Messiah, later on established the nation of Israel in 1948 and all this type of silly stuff. And the sad thing is there are millions of people that listen to this guy and are all excited about these novel truths that nobody else has seemed to be able to figure out. Like most false teachers, he's not been affirmed or ordained by a reputable group of theologians. He is self-appointed, accountable to no one. He, I understand, is a very angry, authoritarian type of a person. And most of, most of these are. They're dictators who viciously attack anyone that disagrees with them. And he, like many, will have deceptively clever messages that appeal to the carnal, self-indulgent passions of the masses. Messages that will keep them in power and keep the money coming in. Deceptions that are very indicative, especially of the prosperity theology that you hear over and over again in 
in our culture today. And all of this reminded me of our current study in Second Peter. We've learned so far in Second Peter 2, 1 through 3, that their methods will be secret. Their message will be sacrilegious. Their masquerade will be seductive. Their morals will be scandalous and their motives will be selfish. We've learned in verse 3 through 10 that judgment is going to come upon them. And last week we began the first of this now, the second part of a, of a, of a sermon exposing the motivations of a false teacher. What really drives them, leaving no doubt that God has utmost contempt for those who dare to trifle with the truth We learned last week that false teachers will be driven by five fascinating motivations. We looked at three of them last week. The first one is they will have a cocky disregard for demonic powers, as we saw in verse 10 through 13. May I remind you that in their defiance and arrogance, they fearlessly and foolishly insult demons. And it's common even today to hear false teachers mocking and insulting demonic forces, rebuking and binding Satan and all of these types of things, thinking that somehow they actually have power and authority over the prince and the power of the air and the minions that follow him. We learned, secondly, that they have a calloused desire for sexual pleasure. In verse 13 and 14, they will be shameless in their pursuit of Sexual immorality, their religious phonies that slip into the church, infecting the naive and the undiscerning with their spiritual deceptions as well as their their physical decadence. Verse 14 says they have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. The idea is that they will be so consumed with sexual immorality and unbridled sexual desire that every person they see is viewed as a potential sexual partner, and they will very often then use their ministry to ensnare, as Peter says, unstable souls, unstable being a reference to people that are volatile, they are unsteady, they are lacking in solid theology, they have no theological foundation, as Peter said, they are those who have not been established in the truth. And so these are undiscerning, doctrinally illiterate, naive, immature Christians that follow these people as well as, and for the most part, unbelievers who think they're Christians but are not. So they will have a cocky disregard for demonic powers, a callous desire for sexual pleasure. We also learned last week of another drive that they have, and that will be a criminal devotion to personal prosperity. At the end of verse 14, we learned that they have a heart that is trained in greed They're accursed children. In other words, they're consumed with greed. They will have an insatiable desire for materialism. They are covetous people. And it's frightening to see that these charlatans have literally disciplined themselves in the art of deception. They know how to con people out of their money. They know how to defraud unstable souls. Those that are as... Paul said in Ephesians 4.14, children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. It's so sad to see this. I, I was looking at some of this um, on television the other day. I was flipping through, as sometimes you do, and all of a sudden I saw this, this uh, kind of a strange-looking fellow that was a very prominent false teacher. I hadn't heard him in a while. I've had other people ask me about him. 
And he was uh, praying for 300 faithful souls that would give $58 and some odd cents. I don't know how he came up with that every month to for one year to his ministry so that you can reap a harvest of blessing as well as to support uh, this ministry as we proclaim the gospel of Christ. And, of course, if you check out his doctrine, you will find that it is filled with the frightening heresies of the word faith movement and some of Pentecostalism and so on. And sadly, these gullible people will send in their $58 a month thinking that they're planting a seed. But in fact, what they're doing is planting a seed that will die in parched soil. And the only thing they're going to receive from it in a harvest will be heartache and deception. And it's interesting, one person asked about this particular individual via the email, and I spent probably 30 minutes giving a lengthy and hopefully a precise response. And after I offered my critique, the response back from the individual was one of angry rejection. And that is very typical of these types of things. An example of 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 This person was one who will not endure sound doctrine, but one who will seek out a false teacher that will tickle their ears and they will turn away from turn away their ears from the truth, Paul says, and will turn aside to myths. Literally, they will reject the truth and prefer myths and the myths will completely overtake them. And frankly and sadly, many people want to believe a lie. They would rather believe the lie than the truth. They want reward without responsibility. Many people want blessing, not forgiveness. They want salvation apart from repentance. And Satan raises up charlatans to give them exactly what they want. So Peter says they are accursed children. In other words, they are children of their father, the devil, living under the curse of divine justice and awaiting the sentence of eternal wrath. So today we come to the fourth and fifth motivation of a false teacher. And the fourth one that I would submit to you that begins in verse 15 is that of a cryptic doctrine appealing to the flesh. And by cryptic I mean what you will see is they will have some secret, typically a mysterious, often ambiguous and puzzling type of doctrine that only the spiritually elite could possibly understand. It's as if they have kind of the ascended knowledge that somehow they see something that nobody else has ever seen. We see this in verse 15, for example. Peter begins by giving an illustration out of the Old Testament. He speaks of them saying, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the truth of the prophet. Now, Balaam was a prophet of God that succumbed to greed. You may recall the story in Numbers 22 through 25. And because Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness, he forsook the right way, as the scripture says, he deliberately rejected what God wanted him to do and told him to do. And he was sorely tempted to hire himself out to the wicked uh, Moabite king Balak. 
Balak was terrified of the Israelites that were coming into the land. And so he was seeking Balaam as a prophet of God to somehow pronounce a curse on his enemies, the Israelites. And you will recall God intervened, even speaking through a donkey. And God used that donkey as well as other means to restrain the madness of the prophet, a man that was out of his mind because of greed. And later on in Numbers 25, you might recall that even though God restrained the unfaithful prophet from cursing his chosen people, Israel, Balaam, being filled with sexual immorality, devised a scheme to somehow seduce the Israelites to become tolerant of and to join in with the Canaanites and to seduce them into immorality and idolatry. And so that's exactly what happened. And that deadly ecumenism with the Canaanites resulted in not only idolatry, but sexual immorality and intermarriages. And ultimately, it incited God to wrath and God's vengeance was poured out upon the Midianites. He slaughtered them and he even killed Balaam, his prophet, with the sword. This is a lesson, by the way, that we would all do well to remember. Dear friends, Christianity, true Christianity, biblical Christianity, mixes with absolutely nothing. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, Paul said, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And later on in verse 17, he said, Therefore, come out from among their midst and be separate, says the Lord. So, here in this text, Peter gives us an ancient illustration of a false prophet, one that was consumed with greed and sexual immorality, and even demonstrates to us the unimaginable damage that they can do. Now, notice the specifics of some of their message that they will preach. In verse 17, it says, These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Two metaphors pertaining to water. Water being the single most important element, especially in the Middle East, that desert region of the Middle East, an element that is absolutely crucial to create as well as sustain life. And even as physical life cannot exist without water, so too spiritual life cannot be created, nor can it be sustained apart from the life-giving waters of divine revelation, the truth of the gospel. And friends, you must understand that spiritually dead people who are utterly blind to the truths of Scripture, cannot be regenerated, they cannot be transformed, they cannot be born again apart from the cleansing waters of the Word of God and the Spirit that purifies our soul. In fact, Jesus said in John 3, 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He also said in John 7, verse 37, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But Peter is reminding us here that false teachers are springs without water. The idea here is that thirsty people in need of spiritual water will come to them. And they will expect to find something that is life-giving and life-sustaining. 
some kind of spiritual substance, but all they will get will be dirt. They're also mists driven by a storm. This would be a concept that the people in the Middle East would understand. If you've ever been to the Middle East, you will often see um, what looks to be rain clouds and mist that comes off of the Mediterranean Sea. And you think, oh my, we're going to get a good rain coming up here. But it never happens, or very seldom happens. The clouds come, they promise water, life-giving water, but nothing happens, leaving people disappointed. So too, false teachers. You see, wherever there is truth, there's always going to be those hanging around opposed to the truth. And we read about this all through Scripture, but I want to remind you of another text. You really don't need to turn there unless you want to, but it's in Jeremiah chapter 23. And in that text, God pronounces a scathing condemnation on false shepherds, false teachers that had arisen in Judah. And he warned all of the gullible people that were following them of what would happen to both the false teachers as well as to them. And in verse 16 of Jeremiah 23, God says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. Literally, the Hebrew concept is that they're making stuff up. Verse 17 goes on. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say calamity will not come upon you. In other words, they're telling you what you want to hear, not what you need to hear. That will always be the mark of a false teacher, tickling the ears of their disciples, helping them parade through a broad way that will lead to destruction, not the narrow gate that leads to life. Preach a message that will sell. That's what they were doing. That's what happens today. Don't give people the truth. They can't handle that. In fact, if you read the marketing gurus and the religious entrepreneurs of our day, and I get their material every week wanting me to read their next book or come to the next seminar on church growth and all of these things, you will basically see that they will tell you, don't preach messages of repentance of sin. Don't tell people that they're alienated from God that they're under the wrath of God unless they repent and place their faith in Christ. Don't tell them things like that. Don't ask people to deny themselves and take up a cross and follow Christ. Don't ask them to embrace Christ in repentant faith or else they'll perish. Don't tell them those offensive types of things. Instead, tell them that they're okay spiritually, that God loves you so much and He wants you so bad to be on His team. That type of a thing. He's just waiting to heal your cancer. He's just waiting to make you prosperous and to give you a purpose in your life and to make you successful, to make you happy. He's just desperately pacing the the, the floors of heaven, hoping that somehow you will trust in Him so that He can pour out all of these blessings upon you and give you heaven now. That's the idea. 
And it's always, God is up to something big. God is up to to something great in your life. The Holy Spirit is about to pour out a great revival or whatever. But friends, that's not God's message. God doesn't tell us what we want to hear. He tells us what we need to hear. Because of His great mercy, because of His grace, He calls men to repentance. You see, glory is in the morning. Heaven is yet to come. It's not to say that we're not going to have wonderful blessings when we follow God, but for those that love Christ, we know that we're going to suffer. But that's not the message of the false teachers. They're springs without water, mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. A terrifying reference to their eternal abode in hell. In verse 18, he goes on, Peter does, and says that they speak out arrogant words of vanity that, and they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. In other words, through their convincing yet empty spiritual rhetoric, they entice by fleshly desires, the text says. In other words, what they're going to do is seduce people that are ruled by their lusts, that are dominated by their emotions rather than reason. And those who are ruled, he says, by sensuality. See, again, their message will always appeal to the Adamic nature. They will always appeal to our sinful pride. People want a feel-good gospel. They want to come to church and feel good and get excited and get pumped up for the rest of the week. And there is a certain legitimacy to that, but not at the expense of the truth, especially for those that don't, find, that don't know Christ. And unfortunately, charismatic types of personalities, charlatans will arise with an attractive, winsome, charming personality and seduce people. If you ever notice their audiences, by the way, uh, you will find that most of their followers will be lonely and desperate women. I spoke about that some last week. Paul even reminded us of this in 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 6. They will enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The same thing was true in ancient Israel. Back to Jeremiah 23, we see more examples of what Peter was saying about their words being vanity, enticing by fleshly desires and sensuality. You see, even in the Old Testament, what they taught was not from God, even as today. Many times what they teach will literally come from demons, as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4.1. Or from their own imaginations. In fact, in Jeremiah 23, verse 16, God says they speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. And in verse 21, he goes on and he says, I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned their back from their evil way and from their evil deeds. In verses 25 through 27, he goes on and he says, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream. I had a dream. And then God says, how long is there anything in their hearts, in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood? Even these prophets of the deception of their own 
who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal. In verse 28, we read the prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord. You see, straw has no nutritional value. It cannot sustain life. And likewise, the cryptic, mysterious, sensational messages of the false teachers neither give life nor do they sustain life. They are figments of their imaginations. They're as worthless as straw. It's only the Word of God that will give life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 29 of Jeremiah 23, God says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? My friends, you contrast what God says in that text with the cotton candy sermonettes for Christianettes that is the standard fare in most churches today, with the messages of the Old Testament prophets, with the messages of the apostles and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will see the difference. They were not worthless deceptions, nor were they spiritual puzzles that only the elite could possibly figure out. But they were clear, the power of God unto salvation that transformed sinners into saints and birthed the church. Despite unimaginable persecution. Might I remind you that as you study the life and the ministry of Jesus, you will quickly see that he had no desire to be popular, to be trendy and connect with the culture. In fact, the Gospels are filled with accounts of him hammering the truth and as he did so, driving away most all of his disciples. For example, in John 6, verse 63, Jesus said, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. And then just a few verses later in verse 66, we read, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Now compare this, for example, with the ministry philosophy of the purpose-driven church, purpose-driven life. Rick Warren, America's pastor, says this, and I quote, If you want to advertise your church to the unchurched, you must learn to think and speak like they do. You see the difference? You see, friends, today, unfortunately, it's all about the package, not the preaching. The most important thing is tolerance, not truth. The most important thing seems to be unity, not clarity. Someone has well said that soft preaching produces hard hearts, but hard preaching produces soft hearts. You see, unlike the contrived word of man, You must understand that the Word of God is like a fire that purges the soul of sin. It is like a fire that laps up error with red-hot clarity. The fire of the Word of God tempers the steel of faith. And it forges the great warriors of the faith to understand the truth and to bear the sword of the truth. It is a hammer that pulverizes pride and turns it into the precious powder of humility. The Word of God shatters our self-righteousness 
and it smashes all of our rebellion. What a contrast to even the seeker-sensitive dribble of apostate evangelicalism that is so common today. Where you're supposed to somehow sneak up on the unregenerate. And I often think, why would you sneak up on a corpse? They don't know you're coming anyway. They're spiritually dead. And then you're supposed to lure them into your church by offering them some kind of a sanitized version of of worldly allurements that naturally appeal to spiritual cadavers that are enslaved by their sin in bondage to the kingdom of darkness. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. People who are at enmity with God, the word says. People that are enemies of the cross, children of disobedience, blind and dead in their sins. Their father is the devil. They're slaves to their lusts. And then what we're supposed to do is use the music and the rhetoric and the language and the media of the world to somehow convince them that we as Christians are really no different than they are. And then gradually, and oh, ever so subtly as to not offend, we need to slip up on them with a non-offensive type of gospel. A wide-gate gospel that will lead them to destruction. Beloved, the Bible knows of no such foolishness. The most powerful reformational preaching in the 16th and 17th centuries occurred in Scotland. And God was pleased in those days to bring great revival to the people for two centuries. And it's fascinating as you read the history that those great Scottish preachers of that day considered themselves to be warrior preachers, guardians of the truth. And literally the way they operated is wherever they saw truth come under siege, that's where they would go to battle. And it cost them their health, it cost them their families, and it cost them their lives. But our modern mindset, especially the mindset of false teachers today, is very different. Instead, we kind of think this way. Wherever there's error, we must cover that error with tolerance and acceptance and love. And we must dialogue with those that differ with the Word of God. Dialogue, to me, is nothing more than a euphemism for compromising your position. We must learn to seek common ground and and justify our apostasy by calling it a demonstration of Christ's love and a passion for unity. Unfortunately, Many seminaries are turning out false teachers that know more about conducting opinion polls and surveys to meet the felt needs of the church consumer than how to exegete the Word of God and preach it, come what may. They are told, for the most part, that as a preacher of the gospel of Christ, you can be both faithful and popular. Obviously, Jesus did not understand that. And worse yet, any man or any woman these days that can fog a mirror and carry a Bible can become a pastor. Pulpits are filled today with people who are unregenerate at worst and untrained and not divinely called at best. And then people come. They expect water. And what do they get? Nothing. They're starving for truth. 
In fact, in most churches, if you take away the music and the entertainment, no one would even show up. There are churches around the country today, when you come in, the first thing they give you is earplugs because the music is so deafening. Friends, to call such a production in a, quote, worship service is the highest example of idiocy and ignorance that I can think of. Not to mention, it is an abomination to the Lord. But self-appointed, unqualified, false teachers are utterly blind to it. In the days of John Calvin, for example, if you were to pastor a church without rigorous theological training, if you were to ascend a sacred desk as a pastor without preparation and without having been affirmed by a body of theologians, you would go to jail. Because they understood that that would be tantamount to practicing medicine without being licensed. Can you imagine that today, going to a physician and he's just kind of self-taught, self-appointed, no real training, He's not board certified, but oh, he loves to work on people. Oh boy, I can't wait. Friends, the point is, how much more important for physicians of the soul to know the glorious truths of the Word of God and to have people affirm them in such a way as to underscore the fact that indeed this person has been called and gifted and trained to be a physician of the soul. We go back to 2 Peter 2 and verse 18. We're told that they speak out arrogant words of vanity. They entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. And he goes on and he says, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. In other words, the disciples of the false teachers are people who are broken and they are lonely and they are confused and they are desperate. They're in bondage to their sin, to life-dominating sins. But they have found some solace in the Christian community, though in most cases they are unsaved, and by superficially embracing some of the basic morality and values of Christianity, they have kind of lifted themselves up, if you will, out of the swamp of wickedness of the world around them, those who live in error. So the false teachers, Peter says, promise them freedom. Freedom. Freedom of everything that oppresses you is the idea. And certainly that's the very heart of the wide gate you can have heaven now gospel of our day. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And indeed, dear friends, these men and women are in bondage to their own lusts. Utterly seared in their conscience. And sadly, and I've talked with them, I've had them in my office I've talked with them on the phone. And what's amazing to me is that they have no remorse over the wickedness and the deceptions that they perpetrate upon innocent people. It is heartbreaking. So these false teachers are driven by their cryptic doctrines appealing to the flesh. How different from the great Scottish preacher James Stewart who said, and I quote, The aims of genuine preaching are to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. Well, finally, in this text, 
Beginning in verse 20, we have the fifth motivation of false teachers. They will have a careful disguise of feigned righteousness. Notice what we have here in the text before us in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, let me stop there. In other words, because of their religious hypocrisy and their church affiliation, because of that, it has produced in them kind of an external moral reform. And it has helped them temporarily transcend the pollution of the world's wickedness through their carnal Christianity. But notice what eventually and inevitably happens. It says they are again entangled in them. In what? Well, in the defilements, the toxic pollutions, the defilements of the world. And it says, and they are overcome. Of course, since they're unregenerate, since they have no restraint within them, since the Spirit of God does not dwell within them, there's no restraint of the flesh, so eventually they just become more and more like the world despite their thin veneer of religious hypocrisy. You see, in their self-deception, they deceive, deceive even themselves. They feign righteousness with a clever disguise of godliness. But in fact, they are pretenders. And at the end of verse 20, we read that the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. You see, my friends, you must understand there is a greater condemnation for those who know the truth. And even in full light of the truth, choose to reject it. A greater condemnation for them than those who refuse to even believe, who even want to know anything about the truth, much less embrace it. And the tragedy of all of this is that with false teachers and the unstable souls that follow them, we see that they are destined to eternal separation from the very God they claim to worship. That's why Jesus would say in Matthew 7 that not everybody that calls me Lord will enter into the kingdom. You know, the Apostle Paul wept over these people, people blinded by satanic lies. He even wrote to the church in Philippi in Philippians 3, beginning at verse 18, regarding this issue. He said, for many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And beloved, it is a heartbreak to me as a pastor and to so many others, and hopefully to you, to look around our country and to see churches today filled with enemies of the cross, whose end is, is destruction, filled with people whose God is their appetite, literally their sensual desires for things that somehow satisfy their flesh. They have no passion to know God and to serve Him in a secret devotion. They have no love for Christ. They have no commitment to holiness. They do not hunger and thirst for righteousness. They want a social club. They want something that makes them feel good. So they embrace Christianity. But ultimately they are consumed with materialism and the pursuit of all of the fleeting pleasures of life. 
They are, if you will, professors, but not possessors of Christ. And their glory is in their shame. They will boast, in other words, in their spirituality rather than being suspect of it. They will brag about their religiosity, yet in the secret recesses of their imagination, they will indulge in every whim of the flesh in their private thoughts. They will sing hymns with the rest of the saints. They will pray prayers and teach Sunday school classes. They will teach in seminaries, and yet they do not know God, and they do not love God. They are enemies of the cross. As Jesus would say, they are whitewashed tombs. They're clean and white on the outside, but on the inside, they're filled with dead men's bones. In the late 19th century, the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon fought against the same wickedness in what was called the downgrade controversy because false teachers were continuing to fill the pulpits in that region of Europe. And by the way, you can see what has happened now. It is utterly apostate. And here's what he said, and I quote, Beloved, I would rather have a thousand devils out of the church than have one in it. I do not care about all the adversaries outside. Our greatest cause of fear is from the crafty wolves in sheep's clothing that devour the flock. It is against such that we would denounce in holy wrath the solemn sentence of divine indignation. And for such we would shed our bitterest tears of sorrow. They are the enemies of the cross of Christ. They give the devil more theme for laughter and the enemy more cause for joy than any other class of Christians. He went on to say the devil gets much advantage over the church by the inconsistency of professors. It is when Satan makes hypocrites that he brings the great battering ram against the wall. Your lives are not consistent. Ah, that is the greatest battering ram that Satan can use against the cause of Christ. Dear child of God, this is the scourge upon the church today. People who are filling the church who really do not know and love Christ. And they have been deceived by false teachers. Many of us have loved ones who are caught up in this very web. Indeed, they live amongst us and some are even in this church. Yet their end is destruction. Your end will be destruction. Unless you get serious about the reality of your soul. Spurgeon went on to say, Mark you, the end of a professing man who has been a hypocrite will be emphatically destruction. If there be chains in hell more heavy than others, if there be dungeons in hell more dark than others, if there be racks that shall more fearfully torment the frame, if there be fires that shall more tremendously scorch the body, if there be pangs that shall more effectually twist the soul in agonies, professing Christians must have them if they be found rotten at last. I had rather die a profligate than die a lying professor. End quote. And then we see that the Holy Spirit closes this diatribe in Second Peter 2 by characterizing those who would dare to wear a careful disguise of feigned righteousness and lead people into error. In verse 22 it says, It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit 
And the sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. You see, a dog in those days was considered to be a very dangerous, filthy, disease-ridden mongrel. Not a cute little pet like we have. And swine were equally filthy, destructive, and ceremonially unclean under the Mosaic Law. Beloved, please hear this. There can be no mistaking it. God has an utter hatred, a holy contempt for anyone that dares to trifle with the truth. And they are morally and spiritually filthy, as this text would tell us. They are dangerous, destructive creatures that we must all avoid, that we must battle at all costs. May God convict us to this end. And on this day, may I challenge you to guard yourself. Be so, so very careful what you allow yourself to read. Folks, just because it's in a Christian bookstore doesn't mean it's Christian. In fact, I would submit to you that much of it is error. Be careful what you hear on the radio. And oh, be careful what you watch on television. Especially with the false teachers that fill the airways these days. Guard your heart. Guard the hearts of your children. Know the truth so well that you can spot a counterfeit immediately. And I will join you in praying that God will be glorified in that most earnest pursuit. Let's pray together. Father, our hearts are stirred again as we immerse ourselves in Your Word. And I pray that somehow by the power of Your Holy Spirit, we will be motivated to be vigilant in our effort to be discerning. And God, I pray that You will deliver those false teachers from the error of their way. We lift them up to You. We pray that somehow You will convict them of the lies that they teach. And Lord, how we pray that even some of our own family members and friends that are caught up in their deceptions will somehow be exposed to the light of the truth and by Your grace believe it and embrace it and live it for their good and for Your glory. And Lord, finally I pray for any person within the sound of my voice that has never bowed the knee to Christ, who has never confessed their sins and cried out for the mercy that You will give them. Oh God, how I pray that today will be the day of their salvation. That somehow in Your mercy and Your grace You will cause the scales to fall off of their eyes. That they might see the glorious Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and come to You in repentant faith. God, would that today be the day that they experience the miracle of the new birth. Thank You for meeting with us. And may You be glorified in all that we do and say. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. And for His sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.